Interesting story, the story of Philippi. Just a couple things before we look at this text. I just want to invite you following the service to uh, our community group time. We're looking at a series called When My People Pray. It's a very, very good series, a very powerful series. So I want to just encourage you to be a part of that. And uh, one other thing I also want to highlight, two weeks from this Sunday, we will be hearing from uh, kind of the progress report of all of our different ministry teams and where is that at during our community time. So please make note of that on the 20th. We'll be uh, sharing in that time together. Well, there are are many questions that we ask throughout our lives uh, with varying degrees of significance. When, When you're three years old, you're trying to decide whether you want a, a red or a yellow popsicle. When you're eight, I remember trying to decide if I wanted to play baseball or go play in the dump. When I was 16, I was trying to decide if I dared ask a girl to the prom or not, which I didn't, which was a good choice. Then when I was 23, I was trying to decide if I should invite out again a red-headed girl that I had met a couple weeks earlier, which I did do, which was a good choice. <laughs> I remember the question, will you marry me? Which I had to wait a few days for the answer, but that was a very significant question in my life. I remember the question of where I would go to school and what career I might choose. And those are some pretty significant questions. They've had a big impact on my life. But this morning we see in this text the single most important question any of us asks. And we're going to look at that together this morning. Paul's in Philippi. This is his second trip. By the way, this is the first Christian church in Europe. Paul had seen a vision during the night and he had seen this person calling them to come over into Macedonia. And so Philip and, or Paul and Silas had, had gone over there to Philippi. And when they went there, evidently there was no synagogue and so they went down by the river. Religious groups often met by the river because there were often purification things they would do and they needed water. And so, sure enough, Paul and Silas went down to the river and there was a lady there they met by the name of Lydia. A well-to-do lady. She made her living from purple dyes, which were exported in, made from uh, shellfish, and she did very well. She had an open heart to God, and when, when Paul shared the message of the gospel with her, she opened her heart and became one of the first believers there in that city. And she invited them to come and use her home. Evidently, she had a large home, and that really became the first house church in the city. Now, one of the interesting events, of course, is this, this gal who's a fortune teller. She evidently had demean, demonic powers by which she could tell things that were going to happen in the future. And she was uh, hired out somebody, probably she was almost like a slave, and she was being used to, for great profit to some people there. And she's going around saying, you know, these, are, these men are servants of the Most High. They're telling you how to be saved. We don't know if she was mocking them or she was just proclaiming this. 
But for some reason, Paul put up with her for several days. And then the text says he became a different... I, I, probably the most accurate one is he became greatly annoyed with her. And so he turns and he, he casts this demon out of her. And I'm sure it was a very, very powerful scene. And wonderful for her, she, she was no longer controlled by these demons, but she was obviously now of, of no value to the people that had made a lot of money off of her. And so they are ticked off. They go to the magistrates. They say, you know, these guys are disrupting our city. Plus, they've got this religious cult, and any religious cult needed to be technically approved by Caesar before it could come into a Roman city. This is a Roman city. And so the magistrates uh, listened to them and had them severely beaten. Now, you know, there are a couple possible variances from what you saw there <coughs> on the screen. But from what I've read, it looks like they were beaten with rods is what, was, what happened here. And if you can imagine being beaten with rods, being beaten with a rod is like taking a broomstick handle and uh, whacking it across somebody's back repeatedly, over and over again, to the point where it would tear the flesh open. Now, you know, if I came up to you and hit you with a broom handle across the back, it would probably, the most damage it would do would be to bruise your back severely. But if it was severe enough and repeatedly enough, it could actually tear the skin. This was a very severe beating. People had often broken ribs from being beaten with rods, and sometimes people died. And so this was a, a very severe thing. Then they were taken to the prison, and there was the outer prison, which had some, a little bit of fresh air in it. There was the mid-range, and then there was the inner prison, which the text tells us they were thrown into. They were put in stocks, which was not only to keep them from escaping, but often for torture. And the position of the feet in the stocks were such that it would create constant cramping and extreme discomfort for those that were there. And so this was not a very pleasant experience. And Paul, later on, will refer, refer to this in one of his letters about this is the first of three times that he was severely beaten. So here they are, it's midnight, they're singing and they're praying and they're worshiping God and the text makes a very important point, it says, and all the other prisoners were listening. Everybody was listening to what was happening. And all of a sudden this earthquake comes, uh, the, the doors are thrust open, the chains come off the wall. It was a severe earthquake, it says it, it rocked the very foundations of this prison. And... As we know in the story, the jailer comes out and he sees the doors open and so he knows that because he is, you know, if he lets people go under his watch, then he has to pay the penalty for their uh, offense. And so he is about ready to kill himself here, seeing that, and we find he draws his sword and, and Paul comes and he shouts. And... You know, Paul says, no! Uh, evidently, this guy was pretty close. And so Paul yells at him, he shouts at him, and, and says, no, we're all here. And, and the jailer comes in and, and falls at the feet of Paul and Silas. And he asks the question. And here it is. This is the most important question anybody asks. What 
must I do to be saved? I would challenge you to think of a more important question. What must I do to be saved? And the answer is very simple. Believe, you and your family, and you will be saved. If, if you look at the text, we see the response to this then in verse 33. It says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God, he and his whole family. This was an amazing night. I mean, this, this man's life and his whole family in that, in one evening, during the middle hours of the night, his whole life changed dramatically. And it, it's, a, it's a very, very powerful story. Well, this morning I want to take a little time and just, you know, I, I'd like to just focus in on this experience of this Philippian jailer. I want you to just think a few minutes with me this morning. This man was right on the edge. I mean, he was, he was one second from hell. That's how close he was. And so Paul shouts at him, and this is a, I, I call this, this is one of those critical moments. And you know, we have those critical moments in our lives. We have those critical moments where, you know, there's a certain situation which brings us into a place where we are going to make a decision. And the result of that decision is incredible. I don't think there's any greater you know, impact than the decision that we make in terms of you know, whether we ask that question or not, what must I do to be saved? It would have been very easy for Paul to be all caught up in what had gone on. I mean, there was just an earthquake. His chains have come on. They were all free. Now was the time just to head out of there. You know, there could have been a hundred things on his mind. I mean, who cares about a, a Roman jailer who was probably a pretty cruel guy anyway, who probably hadn't been the nicest guy to them. I mean, so what if he kills himself? It's just one less Roman to get in the way. Well, I'll tell you who cares. Paul cared. And Paul cared because the Lord cares. And so instead of running, which would have been the normal thing to do, he sticks around, and, and this is intriguing to me, because it says in the text that, that Paul comes out and says, hey, all of the prisoners are still here. Now, either, you know, either Paul and Silas were the only ones whose chains got free, or all these guys were free, and don't ask me to tell you how Paul kept them all there. But it says they were all still there. And we know there were other prisoners in the prison that night. And so this jailer asked this question. What must I do to be saved? And, and you know, why does he ask that question? Because earlier, he had, he had possibly heard Paul out in the town. Paul had been there for several days. I wouldn't be surprised if Paul had spoken to him when they were being put in the prison. Knowing Paul, it's very possible that he did. Uh, they were singing and praying and praising God during the night. They, uh, the earthquake, which was, I mean, was this coincidental? 
I mean, that was a pretty powerful, pretty powerful thing that an earthquake comes in the middle of the night and set these guys free. You, you think that might convince the jailer to ask the question, but it doesn't. Because at that point, he is ready to take his life. And apparently, what it was that turned him from taking, wanting to take his life to asking the question, what must I do to be saved, you know, these words. Paul says, no. Paul says, we are all here. Interesting, isn't it? But that was the phrase that brought this man to his knees. We're all here. We're all here. What it was, was the radical nature of Paul and Silas' response to being set free. That's what got this guy. That's what finally brought him to his knees. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't even the earlier message. It wasn't the earthquake. It was the radical response of Paul and Silas. They don't flee. I mean, this was unheard of. This is the totally unnatural thing to do. I mean, what prisoner is set free from a prison and walks around the prison looking for the warden to let him know they're still there? Uh, you know, this is unexplainable. And it's evidently the most powerful thing in the life of that jailer that night. One of my favorite stories <coughs> is the one that is told by John Ortberg in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. I read it a few years ago, but I'm going to read it again because <coughs> I love the story. And it makes the point so well this morning. The state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It's large, understaffed, overfilled with senile and helpless people, lonely, waiting to die. On the brightest day, it had, seems dark inside. It smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go. I always felt and left with a sense of relief. It was not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in the hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and some words of encouragement. The hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts, into wheelchairs, looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of the hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair, and her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten away by cancer. There was discoloration and a running sore covering one part of her other cheek. And it had pushed her left her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was now the bottom. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old, and she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone, for 25 years. Her name was Mabel. Excuse me, I think I said Edith earlier, but her name was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most people I saw, but I put a flower in her hand, and I said, 
here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. Why, thank you. It's lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I, I can't see you now. I'm blind. I said, of course. And I pushed her chair back down the hallway to the place where I thought I could find some alert patients. Found one, stopped the chair, and Mabel held out the flower. Here, she said. This is from Jesus. Well, that was when it began <clears throat> to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She'd grown up on a small farm. She managed with only her mother and her, until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, stomach aches, and then the cancer came. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes the, and because the hospital was understaffed, the stench was overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually to offer me a piece of candy from the tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from her Bible and often I would pause and she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all of the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop mid-hymn and make a brief comment about the lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her situation. But I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines in the hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder. And I would go to her with a pen and paper and write down the things that she would say. During one hectic final exam week, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to pull, be pulled in ten directions with all the things I had to think about. And the question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to Mabel and I asked her, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? She said, oh, she said, I think about my Jesus. And I sat there for a moment and thought about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied deliberately as I wrote. Oh, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. Then she began to sing that old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my hope, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without Him I would fall. When I'm sad, to Him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, He makes me glad. He's my friend. Well, this is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being actually lived like this. I know. I knew her. And how could she do it? 
seconds ticked and minutes crawled and so the days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company, without an explanation as to why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. And here's the line. She had power. She had power lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone. She had incredible power. You see, the power in this story and, and was not in the earthquake. As powerful as that was. The powerful was in the radical the radical nature of Paul and Silas and, and this life that, with, that they were living. And so when they turned to the jailer and they said, hey, we're all here. Look, we're all here. The jailer said, this is, this is unexplainable. Whatever these men have, whatever these men have, it is powerful. And so he falls on his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? Well, you don't need a degree from Harvard. You don't even need to be smarter than a fifth grader to understand this one. And the answer is very, very simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. Believe in the Lord Jesus is their response. There was a Scottish minister who was visiting with a lady and she had asked him in church sometimes, she said, what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? And he, uh, he said, you know what, could I, could I stop by and, and talk to you this week? You know, that, that means he was stalling. And because, uh, you know, it's, what does it really mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? And so this guy, you know, between Sunday afternoon and Monday, he was trying to think, how can I explain this to this woman? What does it really mean to believe in the Lord Jesus? And so he was thinking about this on the way to her house, and on the way, there was an old rickety bridge. And it was very rickety. And so the pastor came up, and before he walked to Connie, Connie put his toe, just his toe on, just kind of touched it like this to see what it would do. And there was a lady watching him, an elderly lady on her front porch, the house there right by the bridge. And she looked at him, she said, Can ye nigh leaper the bridge? Which in English means, Can't you put your full weight on the bridge? And when she said that, he said, I knew. And so he went to the uh, woman's house and he said, you know, I was coming here today and uh, you asked me what it means to believe in Jesus. He said, there was this bridge. He said, I was looking at the bridge and I knew it was a bridge and I knew all about the bridge, but I had a decision to make. And uh, I even checked it out with my toe and he said, but I had to decide if I was going to trust the bridge. And he said, that's what it means to believe. It doesn't mean to know about Jesus. It doesn't mean to know what He did for you. It, it doesn't mean, you know, any of that. What it, what it really means is, are you willing to trust Him? Are you willing to depend? Are you willing to put your full weight upon Him? And so we see here that when, you know, when Paul and Silas are asking this man, are you willing to depend in and trust Him? the Lord Jesus. Well, there are a lot of Philippian jailers 
in this community. They really are. And there's a lot of skepticism in this community. There's an awful lot of skepticism in our world. And the younger the crowd you're trying to reach, the more the skepticism. There have been, there have been too many failures, too many scams, too many broken promises, too much false advertising. Uh, you know, what or who can you believe? Everybody's making claims, and Jesus is just another one of them. And so that if there was ever a time and ever a generation that needs to see radical Christianity being lived out, it's this one. And, and that's what got the Philippian jailer here. That's what got the Philippian jailer. He probably heard the words, he saw the earthquake, but it was this radical nature of what he saw in Paul and Silas's life. They had a chance to run, but they stayed because somebody needed Jesus. Paul seemed to have been keenly, keenly aware of this reality of, of heaven and hell for people. You know, the Bible says that somewhere along uh, one of the trips here that he was, and it could have been the first missionary journey, but he was, he was take, probably was, he was in a trance and he was taken up and he was shown, Paul says, the third heavens. And I, I interpret that, you know, we have the heavens that we see and then we have the, you know, the, the immediate heavens and then we have beyond and then we have the place where God is. And Paul says, in fact, it was so powerful that God gave me an infirmity in my flesh so I wouldn't get proud of what I saw. I think for a lot of us here, if we could uh, spend the day in heaven, we might come back a different person. And Paul just had, whatever he saw there, he, you know, he, he just had a, a very, very clear understanding. And he had been one of those people on the outside. Yeah, he'd been the Philippian jailer. It, it didn't surprise him. And so Paul here just has this strong, strong sense of, of this reality. I was reading an interesting testimony of a Dr. Maurice Rawlings. I may have read it for you once, but he's a guy that was uh, worked in the emergency room, resuscitation, and he's got the strangest testimony. He's, work, he's, he's a very crass guy, and he's working on somebody, and he's, the guy's, you know, he's, he's got a pacemaker in, and he's pumping his chest, and then he has to stop and adjust just the uh, pacemaker. And he said, most people, when I'm doing that, say, you know, quit pushing on me, you're going to break my chest. And... This guy said, don't stop. Don't stop. I'm in hell. And so the guy was pushing, and, and every time he stopped to adjust the pacemaker, he'd say, don't stop. Don't stop. I'm in hell. And finally he said, pray for me. And the, the, uh, the this is a crass guy. You know, he, he looked at the guy and said, shut up. He said, I'm not a clergy. He said, I'm a physician. And the nurse gave him a look like, come on. And so... Finally, the guy said, okay, okay. You know, he's pumping out his chest. He says, say this. I believe in the Son of God. Keep me out of hell. Just keep saying that. Just keep saying that. The guy started to say that, and Dr. Rawlings said, all of a sudden, this incredible peace came over this man. Just this incredible peace. And he writes in the article, he says, and it was that day that I became a Christian. Powerful, powerful story. We see here that, you know, Paul just had this sense of the reality of, of people and, and that was his life, that was his focus. It wasn't getting out of jail, it wasn't running free, it wasn't sparing his own skin. It was whoever God had 
in front of them. Didn't matter who it was. Well, here's the application this morning. Believe in the Lord Jesus. It's very simple. You know, if you've never trusted and depended upon Christ, that's where it all starts. And uh, we're going to have time around this table just to think about that. Think about what it means for us. You know, W.C. Fields was on his deathbed. He, his, friend, his friends found him, found him reading the Bible, which is very unusual. And they asked him, they said, are you looking for God? He said, no, I'm looking for loopholes. And I'm here to tell you there are no loopholes. Uh, there's only Jesus. And, you know, the answer to that question, the most important question, what must I do to be saved, is Jesus. For those of us who are believers and know Jesus, we need to understand that we have a job to do, and that's to authenticate the gospel with our lives. Authenticate the gospel with our lives. This world is in desperate need, you know, <clears throat> of people living out that life. I mean, it's so sad. You know, I, I came in here Monday morning. What are the headlines? Westboro Baptist Church, okay, holding out signs. You know, thank God for dead soldiers. And, and that's, you know, what does that do to our world? What does that do to the name of Christ? You know, that, that, that's not even the church. I don't know what it is, but it's not the church. And uh, that's the kind of stuff that Satan is about in this world. And it takes a radical demonstration of the power of God being lived out in our lives every day in front of people to overcome those kinds of things. And so we have a, just a great challenge to do that. You know, that's really what the vision of our church is about. We're talking about this vision God is calling us to. It's really about realizing the importance of being an apologetic for the gospel in our community. And for people to see, you know what, there's something unexplainable and radically different about people that claim this name of Christ. And uh, that's my prayer. And that's going to take some courage. That's going to take some boldness. That's going to take some change. And so I would just challenge you uh, as, a, as one who, a believer who lives in tremendous hope and with a tremendous future, to, uh, to remember there's a lot of Philippian jailers in our town. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray as we <clears throat> shortly move into our communion time that you would bless uh, and open our eyes and encourage us. And uh, Father, we thank you for bringing us to a place, many, many of us here, of asking that question, what must I do to be saved? And we thank you for the answer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for this table as we move to it in just a little bit. And uh, thank you for your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.